Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Faith. If you're a first-time person, we really greet you in the name of Christ. Here this, this first Sunday of this new year, of a new year, and we have a new message series that we begin today. We're going to look at, uh, at uh, Micah, the Old Testament prophecy of Micah. Uh, we're calling it Micah, the message of Micah, justice and mercy. Micah comes to us as an Old Testament prophet whose writings challenge us with a very, very basic question. What is God like? What, what is God like? Do we truly understand who he is? You know, the prophets of the Old Testament uh, are often characterized as out of touch, as being negative proclaimers of the warnings from a God who is eager to smash people. And this has led many to avoid the Old Testament or to, to think of the God of the Old Testament as kind of different than the God of the New Testament. Maybe you've heard that, those notions before, that the Old Testament God kind of evolved into a, the New Testament God. I would suggest a resounding no to that. God is God, and God doesn't change. God never changes. God has shown himself to be the holy God who punishes evil and the loving God who finds ways of sparing unholy people. The same God. In Genesis 3, you have these fig leaves. If you remember covering for Adam and Eve, God trying to find a way where they could be covered, he would, they wouldn't be blasted out of, out of existence. That's the Old Testament God, a God of grace, compassion. In the New Testament, we have the book of Revelation, we see the New Testament God who comes to execute wrath on those who oppose him. Same God, Old Testament and New Testament. Let's look at this passage, uh, uh, several passages today, and today we're sort of going to open the door to, to this book of Micah. We're going to look at, the, at uh, who he is and, and where he came from and something a little bit about the book of Micah as we begin to look through this book. And today, I'll give you three little short passages that we want to, in my text today. Micah 1 1, my main passage. We're going to look at Micah 3 8, the passage where he talks about himself there. And then the passage in Jeremiah, a little bit of that portion that we already heard. I'm going to talk about those as we look at who, what's going on with Micah, who he is. Micah 1 1, ESV translation. Be on the, on the overhead there. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Okay? Now, Micah 3 8. He says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And then Jeremiah 26, 16, 19. We heard a portion of this in the scripture reading, but I want you to see that he quotes part of Micah. Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. That's straight from Micah 3, 12. And then Jeremiah says, did, Jer did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster he had pronounced against them? We're about to bring a great disaster upon ourselves. God's word. Micah, I'm calling him the country preacher. The country preacher. <laughs> Micah was a country preacher who still has a timely word for our world today. 
old country preacher from old, <laughs> back there in Bible days, Old Testament, but he has a word, a timely word for our world. Uh, one commentator, Archer, says, so Micah seems to have spent much of his lifetime in the provincial areas rather than the capital city of Jerusalem. Hence, he was not in as close touch with international politics as was his contemporary Isaiah. It's significant that his preaching ministry was especially occupied with the sufferings of the common people, of the peasants, the agricultural areas, who were exploited by rich, unscrupulous, landed nobility. That's, that's Micah's place, okay? Simple outline today. We're talking about the prophet of God, the justice of God, and the mercy of God. Look at me at verse 1. Verse 1, the word of the Lord. Micah is self-consciously an anointed spiritual prophet of the Lord. He says, I am filled with power, with spirit. That's his calling. To, to ex, to ex, that he says that in Micah 3, 8. Filled with the power, spirit of the Lord. To, to expose sin, transgression. That's his target seems to be the, the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. The northern kingdom. Jewish history, the northern kingdom was often called Samaria. The southern kingdom was often called uh, was Judah, the kingdom of Judah. And, and you understand your biblical geography. His name is Micah. And his name means, who is, like, who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? Who is the Lord? The, the book is a collection of oracles given by Micah, sermons, during his long prophetic ministry. Okay? Where is he from? His village. Uh, Morsheth Gath. Gath was, a, was a more of a bigger city, but Morsheth, it means the possession of Gath. It was an annex of nearby village of Gath. It was on a rural highway on the foothills, on the mountain range uh, uh, west of Jerusalem, uh, between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea, but also between Jerusalem and, and Egypt, the road down to Egypt. It was on a highway, near a highway. It was 20 to 25 miles uh, south, southwest of the city of Jerusalem, down the hill. Now, it's interesting that there's no mention here of, of, of that Micah was the son of so-and-so. Now, often the, the prophets, that's how they recognize themselves, right? The son of so-and-so, um, which probably commentators think means that he was probably just a commoner. Again, evidence, he's just a little country preacher with no significant family ties. He was a simple preacher who looked at the nation with his small-town eyes and saw the rich oppressing the poor workers because they were more concerned with riches than with righteousness. And he saw preachers, other prophets, who were more concerned with reputation than piety. And so he did not keep silent. Micah cried out, clearly, in the most creative ways, y'all, this ain't right. That's Micah. His style, one, the New Bible Dictionary says he had a forceful, descriptive style. As you read this book, you see that. In fact, in, 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 in the Hebrew of chapter 1, he used word plays, he used alliteration to warn the various villages that God was, was angry with them. It'd be like he, was, he would say something like this, Baltimore, if you don't change, you will be no more. Washington, unless you repent, you're all washed up. In the Hebrew, that's what he does in the first chapter. He talks, he talks, he uses the different cities, 
and talks about their name and, and does a wordplay on their name. And next week when Reuben preaches on this passage, maybe he'll get into some of that. I don't know. Maybe I've stolen some of your stuff, Reuben. I don't know what's going on here. But his, his time, his era, the dates. The, 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 he lists the three kings here, the, the days of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He, he was a, a contemporary of Isaiah. He came long before Jeremiah, almost 100 years. In fact, we, we, see, we saw in Jeremiah 26 uh, that Jeremiah's life was actually spared because after a bold prediction of gloom and doom by Jeremiah, somebody in the room <laughs> remembered the similar bold prediction of Micah in Micah 3.12. And they remembered that King Hezekiah had exercised caution by not killing Micah. And eventually, Micah was proved to be right. So Micah's words actually spared Jeremiah decades, decades later. A little bit of the, the, just the history of the kings here. King Jotham of Judas, uh, uh, Judah, uh, uh, 742 to 735 B.C. King Ahaz of Judah, 735 to 715 B.C. Uh, by the way, during that, during that time, uh, 722, the Assyrians came into Israel, okay? Came to Israel, the Samaria, the northern kingdom. And then King Hezekiah that he lists here, 715 to 687 B.C. Again, uh, 701, the Babylonians began to come into Judah, and some of the, er some of the lands that he talks about in chapter 1 begin to feel it. <laughs> but then finally in 687 B.C., the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. Jerusalem, okay? Again, some of the background, you can look at that on your own. But what was his message? His message was about justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. He has various quotes about the message of Micah. The basic theme of his message is that the necessary product of saving faith is social reform and practical holiness. Based upon the righteousness and the sovereignty of God, because of the general lack of such saving faith, both the northern and the southern kingdoms are destined to experience God's wrath. Yet, after the punishment is over, the nation will be restored and the Messiah will eventually come. This messianic prophecy that Micah gives us. Another commentator. Within Israel and Judah during this time, a shocking contrast between the extremely rich and the oppressed poor developed due to exploitation of Israel's middle class by greedy landowners. The oppressors were supported by Israel's corrupt political and religious leaders. Because of that, this failed leadership, the whole nation became morally corrupt and ripe for judgment. Another comment here. My, Micah stressed the essential righteousness of the divine nature of God. He was concerned also to point out that these qualities had pressing ethical implications for the life of the individual and the community alike. And Michael was at pains to point out that save, the saving grace of God could not be earned, either by pretentious sacrificial offerings or by indulgence in elaborate rituals of worship. Humility, mercy, justice must be an everyday experience in the life of a person who wants to be well-pleasing to God. Micah, seven, seven chapters. Just a simple country preacher who says, here it is. His, his, his um, co co contemporary colleague, Isaiah, took 66 chapters to say the same thing. <laughs> Micah says, here it is, right here, boom. 
prophet of God. Now, the justice of God. His message about justice and mercy, I'm going to talk about these as, to kind of give us some understanding as we begin to look at this book over the next couple of months. The, the word has several different meanings, this word justice, and applications that I think we need to see because right now in our nation, people have different preferred definitions of justice based, I believe, on their political worldview. I think so. We, we, we have different definitions. Uh, those on the, the right think of judicial justice, law and order, justice. Those on the left think of social justice, helping the oppressed. So, so biblically, what is justice all about? It, it is doing right. It is practicing equity. It is not showing partiality. That is the understanding of the scripture. Justice is living like our God who is upright and just in all his ways. And we, we have all seen the, 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 the idea of the scales of justice being balanced. Now, there, there is, look, there is a thing the Bible calls, in the scriptures called judicial justice. That's the phrase I use for it. And there is a thing called social justice. What are those two things? The, uh, judicial justice. This is the biblical reality that people who break God's law and the laws of nature not only will receive but should receive the consequences of their actions. Mercy, grace, is in one sense an interruption to the justice that, that, that God demands. When you think about it, punishing those who break God's laws by hurting, oppressing others is part of what judicial justice is all about. Last week in our message, we talked about the cry of the martyrs from Revelation. Uh, as they cry, Lord, the, the believers press for simply believing and, and, and be, being martyred and giving up their lives. They desire justice against those who martyred them. Justice, judicial justice, that those would reap what they sow. But then there is social justice, and there, there's a lot of talk about this is many people are very sensitive to the unjust things that are done in our world, the inequities. As believers, we need to, to think carefully about this. The, the need for equal opportunity for all people does not necessarily mean that there will be an equal outcome for all people. God never demands that. Many in the social justice world fail to see that. As believers, we need to treat people with dignity as fellow creatures made by our God. And this involves allowing people to make bad decisions and experiencing the consequences of bad decisions and praying that they won't experience the full consequence of bad decisions. Assisting those who are victims of oppression by bringing God's righteousness and order and peace into the situation. It's ministry to the outcast, ministry to the poor, ministry to those who are disempowered, social justice. Is part of the church's calling. Now, th there's a modern this modern discussion uh, 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 just last year led to a, 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 a major rift among many in the church world. Uh, you might not know this. Uh, this past fall, a controversial document was created that's simply called the Soci Social Justice and the Gospel. The document was signed by thousands of church leaders. And it sought to clarify the important distinction between social justice and the gospel, which, which, the gospel which, which champions the cause of the poor and oppressed as essential and foundational, in contrast to a gospel 
that promotes social justice as a fruit of salvation. It's a difference in root and fruit, as I understand the distinction. There's a lot to unpack here in this contemporary discussion, and I promise when we get to chapter 6, we'll talk more about that. But I want you to be alert to that issue that is out there. Let me say this for now. At our church, we're committed to making disciples of Jesus Christ as our first priority. And we're also committed to disciples who are committed to living lives of reconciliation and justice. And, and we may never compromise either of those biblical priorities. We should, ne- we should never forget that Jesus himself said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? And there are implications here. At the end of the day, People certainly need resources. They certainly need to have uh, equal resources to be empowered to flourish in this world. Amen. But at the end of the day, what does it profit the person who's lost? No matter how much we give. So as we give a cup of water in the name of Jesus, as it says, alludes to in the New Testament, may we be sure that they know it's in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're talking about ministry to both the body and the soul. Ministry through both word and deeds. Ministry of evangelism and social justice. See, a train moves on two tracks, doesn't it? An automobile moves when the wheels on the left and the wheels on the right are balanced. And a healthy church finds that balance in word and deed. One of the questions we need to ponder is the social justice movement that we see in churches just good living. Is it merely a fad among believers or something that's driven by a passion of the word of God? Is it merely a fad? Is it fueled by the Holy Spirit, by true compassion? Or by a spirit of fear? Fear to stand up for maybe some very hard truths that the scriptures say our dying culture refuses to listen to. As we go through Micah, coming months, we need to wrestle with these kinds of questions. Judicial justice, social justice, then then personal justice. You know, as we hear Micah talk about doing justice, doing justly, uh, part of that means uh, uh, not not just on the macro level, but on the micro level in our relationships, how we address the people in our lives. God calls us not only to do right by evildoers, by those who are needy, There's also a biblical necessity to do right with the people right in front of our face, right in in our personal lives. And I want to call that personal justice, treating the people in our lives with dignity, patience, compassion, honesty, integrity. It means being committed to righteousness in relationships with one another, in our relationships with one another. Matthew 5, 23, interesting passage here, Matthew, Matthew 5, 23, 24. If you're offering your gifts at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Very important principle, that if you have something with a brother, or you think your brother has something against you, there's an issue. There's a real issue that needs to be addressed, according to what Jesus says there in the Sermon on the Mount. What does justice look like for you right now? 
What does justice in relationships look like for you right now in your life, at your home, in your home life, among your friends, here at church, at work, online? What does it look like? What does justice look like? Well, the, the third thing I want to look at here is the mercy of God, God's mercy, because Micah comes from the justice of God and the mercy of God. This is God's response to the pains of life. God's response to the pains of life. Arthur Pink says, uh, like his grace, mercy issues forth from God's goodness. It's the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of, of fallen creatures. Thus, it presupposes sin, but it's God's desire to relieve the misery of the fall that we all experience. We see his mercy to Israel and to the nations because he is merciful to Israel and to the nations. In chapter 4, we're going to see the nations coming to Zion to understand the truth of God. The passage is, is similar to Isaiah chapter 2. In fact, we don't know if Isaiah borrowed it from Michael or Michael borrowed it from Isaiah. But the mountain of the Lord, the nations coming to learn about the Lord. Michael 4 and Isaiah chapter 2, the vision of hope for the future. It certainly carried the people of God who clung to the hope that though God was disciplining his people, in the captivity, he was not through with them yet. That was important. That was important. That this judgment, this discipline that's predicted, it wasn't going to be the end. There was more coming down the road. Michael will show us a ruler, a shepherd king, in chapters 2, 4, and 5, and a remnant, those who are spared by the shepherd king. In fact, as we go through the book, don't miss the back and forth that we're going to see in Micah's message. He talks of the doom and then the hold, the gloom and then the hold. Over and over again, we see him reminding us that the God who judges is the God of mercy and loving kindness towards his people. The, the, the Hebrew word, many have heard this word, is the word chesed, chesed. It's uh, translated as H-E-S-E-D. That's in, in, in the Hebrew, just so you'll know that there's a little bit of Hebrew there. But uh, it, it, it's translated in different ways in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, mercy, steadfast love, loving kindness. And it's, a, it's a word we offer. It's all over the Old Testament. Uh, an article by um, R.C. Sproul, Jr. Uh, a few years ago, What is Hesed? There may be no more significant Old Testament description of how God relates to his people than this Hebrew word, Hesed. So I argue that the best translation of the term would be loyal love loyal love. God loves his people genuinely, immutably, loyally. Both the love and the loyalty are, of course, tightly bound together. That is just as one cannot love capriciously, so one cannot be loyal without love. God is for his people. He will never cease to be for them. So our calling is to reflect that reality. Our loyalty and our love grounded in our loyal love for him toward us loyally first ought to be toward both what it is we believe and those with whom we believe it. Too often we fail one way or another. So loyal love remains faithful to both the word of God and the people of God. Loyal love looks to the church, not as a provider of religious services, but as the body of, Lord, of, of our Lord, our family. Some even translate hesed as covenant love. Here, we remember that family is not just emotional connection that can come and go, but family, binding, family is commitment. R.C. Sproul 
Junior, mercy, Hesed, compassion, loyal love, covenant love. We see that. <laughs> we see that here in, as we go through Micah. Justice and mercy. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. Do you remember the Good Samaritan story? You, all, you remember the story. Jesus told the story about the man who was beaten up. The three, the three Jewish people came by, didn't do anything. The, the Samaritan comes by and helps the man. And G Jesus says um, that he, the Good Samaritan was good because he showed mercy to the one who was in need. He showed mercy. He didn't ask a bunch of questions about, why are you in the ditch here? You must have done something wrong. Is that what Jesus does? Is that, is that, that's what, the, what the, Jesus says. The man in the story saw the need and met the need. Didn't ask questions about why the man was in need. That's what mercy does. Mercy does. Mercy looks at the need, not how the person got in the need, but says, "I'm here to be the arms and, and, and the eyes and, 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 and the and the ears of Christ to you, that you might be lifted up." That's what mercy does, because that's what God has done for us while we were yet in our sins, picked us up. Somebody asked a similar question I asked a few minutes ago. What does mercy look like for you? What does mercy look like for you in your life? At home, among your friends, in church, at work, online. Are you one who is high on the justice side? And, and say that everybody needs to reap what they sow, be careful. Is that how God came to you? Did you are you reaping everything that you've sown? No. God calls us to be a merciful people. A merciful people. Romans 12, great passage on body life. Let me read some of these verses. It's Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. But it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The basic thing Paul wants to get at here is vengeance is God's, it's not ours. We're to deal with mercy with people. We're to pray for people that God would spare them from the wrath, like he spared us of the consequences of the the things that we have done. So Michael begins his collection of sermons with words of gloom, warning, and the fact that God has come to discipline his people. But he ends the book reminding us of his incredible mercy. I learned this week the closing verses of the book are read each year by Jewish worshipers, the afternoon service on the Day of Atonement each year. Micah 7, 18 to 20. This is how the book ends. Who is a God like you? It's a takeoff on his own name. Again, he does things with words. <laughs> Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. There's our word, chesed. 
He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to, your, to our fathers from the days of old. This word of hope, this word of God's compassion, because God pardons those who have experienced iniquity. What is God like? He is the uniquely holy, sovereign Lord, maker of the heavens and the earth. And, and the Lord of glory deserves, demands all of our obedience, our love, our commitment, our loyalty. And we see the nature of God most fully at the cross. There we see divine justice, don't we? Our, our sins have to be dealt with. And there we see mercy. God found a way to maintain his justice while saving a people for himself. The cross brings before us the reality of his mercy and his justice. Back up in Romans chapter 3, there's a little phrase in that chapter. We're talk, you know the verse probably just says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 are justified or declared right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And Paul says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, patience, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul is saying there, in a nutshell, is at the cross, God satisfied divine justice. Divine justice was satisfied by the Son of God. Divine justice was not overlooked. He didn't just say, I'm not going to be just because I can't be just. No, he found a way to be just and merciful. That's our gospel. That's our God. Who loves us. And has called us to just love him back. Mercy is seen in the elements. It's seen in, in the bread, reminding us that Jesus is the bread of life who experienced pain for us. Justice is seen in the, in the blood, the blood that was spilled for us by the Son of God, mercy of God. Songwriter William Newell, one of the moody songwriters back 100, over 100 years ago, um, Wrote these words, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not that it was for me that he died at Calvary. By God's word at last, my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law that I'd spurned till my guilty soul, imploring, turned to Calvary. And now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. And now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary because the chorus is mercy there was there. Mercy and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty 
at Calvary. You know that. You know that. As your burdened soul found the liberty, the freedom that comes by looking at the cross and seeing there the justice of God, the, 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 the penalty for your sins and my sins paid for, not ignored, but paid for by the Son of God who came to die for you. That's the wonder and the beauty of the gospel of Christ. And I pray as we transition to this supper that you know that pardon and that you're not one who is here trying to earn the favor of God. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. It is granted to you by the Lord Jesus Christ who died on a cross for you and for me and for all who will call on his name. You know, in the Old Testament, the worship, there was a mercy seat. The, the, the ark had a mercy a seat. It was gold, the, the, the ark, the, the, the angel's wings, the cherubim. And it was, it was the mercy seat. And it was a place, again, where the, in the Old Testament, God provided a means where we could be, where the Old Testament worship could be saved. As the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat on the day of atonement. Jesus is the mercy seat, brothers and sisters. We find the mercy and the love of God at the cross. Officers, come on forward as we continue. This, this supper, this uh, sacrament is for those who know the gospel, who have experienced the, the, the grace of God and know the mercy of God through Jesus Christ and are following him and are seeking to, to, to be a, a disciple of Christ in his church. And for the children who've been invited through their parents through the sacrament for you, if you're a visitor and you understand the gospel, please partake. But if you don't understand the, 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 the simple freedom of the gospel, you're not walking with Christ, you're not connected to his people, we ask you to pause and not take of these elements. Um, the scriptures give warnings about this. Uh, we look, man should examine himself. We may examine ourselves that we might be, know that we're, 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 I don't say, we're qualified, we're ready, because we understand the grace of Jesus Christ. We'll give you a moment to pray and, and talk to God for this meal. night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of our sins. Drink in remembrance of me. Body of Christ. 